right, we are going to continue our study in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 3. And I want to encourage you, as Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, each, again, we, we divided the chapters. He wrote this as one complete letter. So if you've missed any of these studies, I'd encourage you to go back. Uh, You can watch them online. You can listen to them online at calvarycentral.org. But each teaching builds off the one before it. And as Pastor John has been sharing in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is building the case that mankind is guilty before a perfectly righteous God. That we are all in the same boat. No one is good. No, not one. We are all guilty. I want to warn you, don't look at chapters one and chapters two simply as a list of things not to do. Now, we don't do them. I mean, that, I'm not saying that we should engage in these activities, but what Paul is saying is we all do them. We are all guilty before a righteous God and these are the things that we engage in that are so contrary to the nature and the character of who God is and no one escapes that reality that we have sinned and fallen short of God. So as we approach Romans, understand this. The entire letter is probably one of the most complete explanations of the gospel in all of scripture. It's really summed up in Romans 1.16 as Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now let me ask you this. Consider the audience for a moment. Paul is writing this letter to the early church. It is going to be read publicly and passed around the different churches within Rome. Why would he preach the gospel to the the saved? Why is he taking so much time to to paint such an elaborate painting of what the gospel truly is to a community that is already born again? Let me give you three reasons. One, for the sake of adoration. The gospel is simple, isn't it? Jesus died for our sins. A child can understand that. Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to have all the answers to reap the rewards of the gospel. But here's the reality. The more we learn the richer our faith becomes because our appreciation grows. Did Jesus die for our sins? Yes. But Jesus was perfect and he died for our sins. Jesus was innocent and he died for the sins of humanity. Jesus is God in the flesh and he was innocent and he died for the sins of all of humanity. Jesus the Messiah, whom the prophets spoke of, who God prepared a way for thousands of years. I mean, we could keep going back and back and back and elaborate on the wonder of the gospel. It is simple, but it is deep and it's rich. 
And the more we learn, the more we, our appreciation grows. See, Paul's letter to the Romans, it's an intricate painting. The base code is our guilt, isn't it? But as I was thinking about it, my, my kids, as they were learning to draw, you remember how they would draw a person? It was a stick figure. And you thought it was great because you knew exactly what they were drawing. And then eventually that stick figure was still a stick figure, but it had huge hands and then huge eyeballs. And you knew it was a person. But think about the difference between that and just a gifted artist who can paint a true-to-life portrait. We know what each of the those paintings are of, but one, there's a depth of appreciation for the gifts and the talents behind it. And again, I promise if we're careful to learn what Paul is communicating through this letter, I'm confident that our love and our appreciation for who Jesus is and what he has done is only going to grow. It's not just head knowledge. It's for the sake of adoration. The second reason he preaches the gospel to the choir is for the sake of mission. He is equipping the saints to go out and do what he has already done, to share the gospel with the lost, to address the critics and the cynics and the scoffers, to give them an answer for the hope that is in them. Isn't that what 1 Peter Isn't that what Peter writes in 1 Peter? He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Why do you believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago and was executed, why do you serve him today? Well, let me tell you why. Let me give you a reason for the hope that's in me. That was Paul's custom, wasn't it? He would go into a community and he'd go to the synagogue and what would he do in the synagogue? He would reason with the people. He would talk to them. He would understand their worldview and he would explain why the Christian worldview trumps all of it. In Acts 17, 16, we read that while Paul waited for the other disciples at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols, when he saw that they were worshiping lesser gods. So what did he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and then he reasoned with the Gentile worshipers, then he went to the marketplace daily, and he reasoned with whoever would listen there. And now Paul says, let me equip you to go out and do likewise. So for the sake of adoration, for the sake of mission, and this is one thing, the final thing that you see in all of Paul's letters, for the sake of unity within the body of Christ. And we've heard echoes of that even in the first two chapters. There's no different difference between Jew or Greek that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's this underlying exhortation for unity within the body of Christ. Often we hear in the New Testament, be of one mind, be like-minded, share the mind of Christ. Paul has already said salvation is for the Jew first, but it's also for the Greek. See, there was a problem even in the early church. The Jews constantly were boasting of their heritage, 
and then the Gentiles were boasting of all the freedoms that they had, one of which was, I don't got to get circumcised, so you do you, but I'm born again, and I don't got to jump through that hoop. But what has Paul already taught us in the first two chapters? That the Gentile is guilty apart from the law. That his his conscience bears witness against him. The Gentile is guilty of suppressing the truth of God. God has revealed himself even to the non-Jew, even to the one, the ones who had not received the law of the God, law of God and the prophets, and the words of the prophets. That Gentile is still guilty before God because God has revealed himself through his creation. And Paul has told us God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. But mankind has been ungrateful. We've been futile in our thoughts. We have worshipped the created things and not the creator of those things. And when we cease to worship God, it's not that we worship nothing, we worship anything. And Paul says, just because you are a Gentile and you have not received the law, it does not mean you are excused. You're guilty. The wrath of God is revealed by giving people over to their corrupt desires. And then he turns to the Jew and he says to the Jew, and you are guilty under the law. You're looking at the Gentiles, you're looking down your nose, thinking, oh, I'm so much better off than you are. And Paul explains in chapter two, you're inexcusable, oh man. You judge others, but you're doing the exact same thing. Just because you've been given the law doesn't mean you followed it. The judgment of God is according to truth against all those who practice unrighteousness. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? The Gentiles are guilty apart from the law, the Jew guilty under the law. That's what Paul has explained in the first two chapters. No one is good, not one. So now in chapter three, as he's laid that case and made it plain, he is going to start by answering the critics, the cynics, and the scoffers. He's going to present arguments that no doubt he has heard in the marketplaces and in the synagogues whenever he was taking the gospel out to the people. He met, was met with opposition. So he knows how people will answer the truth of the gospel. And as he equips the early church, he is presenting some of these critiques of the gospel and equipping the church to respond. And it's amazing how applicable it is to us today. So let's begin. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And he's thinking of the Jews and where their mindset might be after they've just discovered that they are just as guilty before God as the Gentiles. That's a radical reality for them. 
because Gentiles were heathens. They were pagans. They were separated from God forever. The Jews, they were God's chosen people. So here's Paul's question. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now, as you can see, Paul's playing two parts here. And it might be a little bit difficult to follow, so let's back up a little bit again. So, Paul is equipping the saints to answer the skeptic, the cynic, and the scoffer. And I say those three things purposefully because it help us, helps to understand the level of disagreement people have with us. Not everyone is mocking Christianity. Some people have genuine questions that we should be equipped to answer, and that is the skeptic. The definition of a skeptic is a person inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. It's not personal with them. They just question the ideas that you have. And that's fair enough, isn't it? Guys, we believe that God came down in the flesh 2,000 years ago, took on the sins of mankind, died, and rose again three days later, appeared to many people for 30 days, and then ascended to the right hand of his father, and now he's preparing a place for us. Guys, that takes some faith. But why do we believe that? Why do we believe that? We'll spend some time as we go through Romans talking about eyewitness accounts. We'll talk about fulfilled prophecy. We'll talk about the word of God being 66 books with over 30 different authors written over 2,000, more than 2,000 year period, all unified, sharing the same message. We'll talk about the historicity of the disciples and their eyewitness accounts. We'll talk about Paul's letters and the validity of what he experienced and the transformation that he had on the road to Damascus. But the skeptic, simply asks, why do you believe this? They question the ideas. Then you have the cynic. The cynic questions our motivations. 
A cynic is a person who believes that people are motivated purely by self-interest rather than acting for honorable or unselfish reasons. What's the world's impression of the church today? Why does the church exist? A crutch? What else? Money. Does the evangelical church have a role to play in that misunderstanding of the church? Absolutely. But the cynic questions the motives, the heart of the person, why they do what they do. And then finally, the scoffer. The Bible has not a whole lot of positive things to say about a scoffer. A scoffer is one who mocks, who tears down, who makes fun of someone or something And we'll come across all three of those in our Christian walk. And we'll see that Paul answers all of them. So let's jump back to his critiques or his presentation of the critiques we will see. One, what advantage is there for a Jew? So again, as the church approaches the unsaved world, they will come across Jewish individuals. And the question will be, why? If we're all in the same boat, if we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what is the purpose of everything that's happened before Jesus? What benefit is there to being a Jew? I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought we were set apart from all other nations. We have the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have Isaiah, the prophets, Jeremiah. We have the story of Joseph and Joseph and Moses and King David. Are you telling me those stories are meaningless? That our ancestry is meaningless? That the law and the tabernacle and the temple and the priests and the prophets, all of that was for nothing? Paul, you're saying we're no different than anybody else, that we stand guilty before God. Did any of that matter? What was the point if we're all in the same boat? What was the profit? Was there any benefit? And Paul says, more than you can possibly understand. He says, first and foremost, you received the living word of God. God revealed himself to you. He gave you his word, the oracles. That means God's speech, his sayings, his teachings, his instructions. And the answer to Paul might be then, well, I thought you said the law can't save us. And Paul would say that doesn't mean it's worthless. That doesn't mean that it's pointless. It has immense value. It just doesn't have the ability to justify you before a righteous God. It doesn't make you right before God. But here's what you need to understand, O Jew. God spoke to you. He committed his revelation to you. Your very existence in history points to the Messiah, points to the person of Jesus Christ. The stories, the historical accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and King David, those are stories about salvation and redemption and they point to the person of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing history if you ask me. 
Your history points to the one who takes away the sins of the world. You got to carry that. What profit was it? Oh, it was immense. But it doesn't make you better. As I thought about this personally, I was thinking about the high calling of the church that we have been entrusted with the word of God. That we have been given the God's revelation to humanity. And I've had a number of discussions this week with close friends who are involved in fellowships that unfortunately just don't place a high value on God's word. And I've kind of danced around those conversations a little bit because I would never call someone out of their fellowship unless they're preaching just heresy. But to be honest, lately I've felt convicted, especially in the time that we're living in right now. I am convicted that if we are not teaching the word of God, we are robbing God's people. And it doesn't have to be exactly like Calvary Chapels do it. But you know what the heart of a fellowship is. You know where the word of God fits into their day-to-day life. And guys, if you ever find yourself going anywhere else and God calls you someplace else, please, I beg you, find a place that loves God's word and desires to teach it to God's people. Because if we're not doing that, what are we doing To me, there is no greater act of love than helping God, helping people see Jesus through his word. Just as Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. So Paul says, yes, there's a great deal of value And then he poses this question from the cynics. Well, doesn't the unbelief of Jews undermine the message you claim to carry from God? So again, he plays the role of the cynic and he asks the question, okay, if if the Jews are God's chosen people, what does it say if so many Jews have not believed that Jesus is the Messiah? If that is God's chosen people set apart for his divine plans and purposes and God's chosen people don't even believe that Jesus is the Messiah, how can we say that what you say is true? If they're rejecting the message, it must not be a message from God. This is amazing because this is what many atheists and secular humanists claim today. That my unbelief in God proves that God does not exist. Now, you, you may think, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. Oh, but if you listen long enough, they can make you think it makes sense. They say that their unbelief proves God does not exist because God has the burden of proof. And if God has not brought me to a place where I believe in him, then that means God is not real. And belief in God isn't simply 
place, it's completely unreasonable until God makes himself plain. And God has not done that in my life, so I can contend that God does not exist. And your faces look very confused, and they should be. See, that misses such an important point. Truth isn't based on how many people believe it. That's not how truth works. Truth isn't based on popular vote, contrary to what the world thinks today, right? What is right depends on what the majority thinks is right. That's how we determine morality today. What does most people think is right and okay behavior? And we'll just get behind that. Guys, that's not truth. Truth is truth even if no one believes it. It doesn't change truth. What we believe about God doesn't change him one bit. As Paul has already said in Romans 1.18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Guys, a lack of faith is rarely an intellectual issue. It's an issue of control and authority. And the moment that we acknowledge and we, we answer that first question that every human has to come to term, terms with. Is there a God? Is there a God? And if we can look around and see the divine creation and that everything has order to it, and we can say, no, no, it's all an accident. We are suppressing the truth. But if we come to the realization, okay, there's a divine creator, the next question is, has he revealed himself? Yes. Okay, if he's revealed himself, what has he... These are questions that every human being needs to ask. And God says, I have made it known. I have made it plain. And if you want to reject it, it's not an issue of revelation. It's an issue of control. And it's an issue of authority. So Paul says it doesn't matter how many people believe or don't believe. God is God and he does not change. And then he asks another question. He plays the role of cynic again. If our sin, meaning if us breaking God's law glorifies God, isn't he unjust for judging unrighteousness? So here's, again, you have to kind of look at Paul's other teachings to understand what he's talking about, but he has shared through his other letters, and I assume through conversations with the unsaved, when they question, well, how can a good God judge evil? How can a good God send people to hell. How, I mean, people struggle with that reality, right? How can he be good? And Paul would have said, well, it's actually in his goodness 
We see his goodness through the way that he judges. How would you know a judge is good if he's, at, he's never heard any cases? Think about this for a second. How can you look at a judge and say, man, that judge is so fair. He's so good at his job. If no cases have ever been brought before him, you know that a judge is good because when a case comes before him, he judges rightly. That makes sense, right? A good judge judges rightly. He judges fairly. And that's what Paul has explained through many of his teachings. It's kind of like this. I told myself I'd never use Marvel analogies in teachings, but here we go. Think of a Marvel movie where all they do is sit around and talk about what they had for breakfast. Would you look at these guys and be like, man, that's a hero right there. That's impressive. No, they're heroes because we don't look at it this way, but they're judging evil. They're destroying what is evil, and they are heroes because they are making the right decision in judging who is bad. If they're flying around judging grandmas who are crossing the street, we would say they are the villain in the story, right? That's why I don't use Marvel (laughs) analogies. But the reality is, God is good, and his goodness is shown through his judgment, He is righteous, and his wrath is a reflection of his goodness. He is that good that no sin can stand in his presence. He's he's, he's beyond the goodness that we can understand. And so people would say to Paul, okay, so if God's goodness is displayed through my sinfulness, then I should sin all the more. Because the more I sin, the more God's goodness is revealed. And isn't he evil for judging me for my sin? If through my sin I am showing the world how good he is? Guys, this is how twisted we get when we try to justify our sin. But guys, this is, I love God's word because we haven't changed in 2,000 years. Even Christians say, man, shouldn't I just sin so that God's grace may abound? If God uses evil to demonstrate his righteousness, isn't he unrighteous for judging the very thing that is demonstrating his righteousness? Guys, that's some crazy gymnastics, isn't it? It's it's shifting the blame of our sin onto God. God, you made me this way. So why am I guilty? You designed me this way. And if you're all powerful, because this is exactly what we see in the garden. Adam was caught in his sin. And what did he say to God? He said, it was the woman who put, that you put here with me. It was the woman you put, who did he just blame? God and the woman. In one breath, he blamed God and the woman. God gives him this amazing, 
garden, paradise, to walk with him, to be with him. And one day that's going to be restored and we will walk with God. And all Adam can say is, you did this. This is your fault. I disobeyed because of you. And listen to Paul's response to this. Guys, this is insane. Well, that's not exactly what he said. But he said, if you really want to go to, and this is a really good technique if you're talking to unbelievers and they have this worldview. Take that worldview as far as it will go. Take it to its logical conclusion because Paul says, okay, God isn't fair in judging you for your sin. That means he can't judge anybody, right? What you're saying is you don't want God to judge anybody. Hitler, Stalin, all the the deep, dark, broken, disgusting, in our eyes, people of the world. God, God can't judge them either. So Paul asks, how will God judge the world then? You're only thinking about your sin. But what you're saying is no one is guilty then. That there's no such thing as justice. No one is responsible for their actions. Or does this just apply to you? And for the most part, that's what people think. Oh, we want justice as long as it's not justice for my actions. And that's what Paul says. How, God's going to judge the world, but it, he can't pick and choose. He is a good God and he will judge all sin. And either our sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and God poured out his wrath on pure innocence for our sake or we will stand before God with a bucket of judgment as Pastor John spoke about last week because our sins have not been judged. It's not just illogical thinking, but, but, but listen, this is so important here. So Paul's explaining, again, the cynic and our response to the cynic, but then he makes an interesting point He says, they twist my words. And why not say, this is what they would say Paul was teaching, let us do evil that good may come. So they made this illogical conclusion and then they went around telling people, this is what Paul teaches. Let us do evil that good may come. And Paul says, that's slanderous. And their condemnation is just. That's the scoffer. That's the mocker. That's the person in the world who hears the message of scripture that God has created men and women uniquely and that he has created the covenant of marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman to reveal the mystery of Christ's love for his church. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing that helps us to understand how much Jesus loves his bride, the church. Oh, you hate gays? That's the conclusion that the world comes to. Oh, let's take this truth of God's word and let's take it and make it mean something that God's word has never said. Oh, you're, you're, you're a bigot is what you're saying. I'm a bigot because this is what God is for. God is for healthy marriages between a man and a woman and that's where there's human flourishing. Oh, get, don't get me wrong. It is not perfect and it is not easy, but it is God's design. 
And it's not simply about what God is against, it's what he's for. And it would make sense that the enemy would want to twist that and pervert it if a healthy marriage demonstrates who Jesus is and how much he loves his church. No wonder the enemy's so involved in tearing down what marriage should be. But the world says, oh, you're a bigot then. Guys, that's slanderous. That's not what God's word says. God's word teaches life is sacred. Every life has intrinsic value. We were created in his image. Oh, so you care about the baby in the womb, you just don't care about the baby once it's born. What? No, that's not what God's word teaches. God's the creator and he's the sustainer of all things. Everything we see, our very breath comes from him. Oh, so you're you're a science denier. You reject science, right? Now, let's look in the mirror. Do we have a hand in perpetuating? (laughs) Perpetuate. Oh, man. Perpetuate. Perpetuating, let's go with that one. Perpetuating, in many words, a fool is made. That's what the Bible says, so look that up. Um, Guys, we have a hand in these incorrect views. Like, we cannot look in the mirror and say we are not at fault for some of these. Again, we've seen... Westboro Baptist many years ago picketing in front of funerals for homosexuals and soldiers and all kinds of things. And what did their sign say? God hates gays. So to think that we don't have a hand in some of this or that let's make sure that our faith is built on what God's word says. Not the modern ideas of what ever the evangelical church is pushing forward. Let's make sure that whatever we believe comes from here. Because our role of the ch- as the church is to represent God well, to bear his image. So that when we're accused of these things, they hold no water. There's nothing that people can grab onto. No, I care about the child before the child's born, and I care about the child after they're born. And I'm not going to buy into your straw man theory about what I believe. And again, it's not about what I believe, it's what God has said. So, all right, sorry guys, let's, let's keep moving. Per, per, okay, Romans 3, 9. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. So who's he turning his attention to now? Are we better than they? Again, he's turning his attention to the Jews. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have, now let, let me give you an, 
just real quick before we go through all of these, Paul is such a masterful Bible teacher while the Bible was still in the works. Because what he's doing right now is these aren't his words. He is pulling all of these phrases and these statements and these claims from the Old Testament, from the Psalms and from the prophet Isaiah. And if you look back at these claims, some of them have to do with the Jews. Some of them have to do with Gentiles. Some of them have to do with the enemies of the Jews. It covers all bases here. So keep that in mind as you look at these quotes. They are not Paul's words alone. Paul is quoting what God has already said through David and the prophets. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Deconstruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, And Paul says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If Paul was in court, these would be his closing arguments. At least as it stands for this point, that mankind is guilty. Because the most commonly held worldview is that mankind is inherently good and generally good. That we have a natural propensity to do good. That it's built into us. It's an attribute of most humans. Unless you got some wires crossed, then you're one of the bad of the bad. But for most people, they're, they're generally good. And you ask most people do you believe in a heaven? And they still say yes. And you ask if you're going there and they say yes. And you ask why, they'll say, because I am a good person. I think we, hey, you know, we all make a few mistakes, but ultimately we're good people. Guys, our good works will never outweigh our bad works. See, Paul turns to the Old Testament and he restates the point Scripture has remained consistent. We are all hopelessly guilty. We are on the wrong side of a perfect and just just God, and we have no defense. We have nothing to offer. Our mouths are stopped. What can we possibly say? Now, you may say, well, aren't there some people that are better than others? Aren't there some people that are more morally good than others? And I love this analogy, and I've shared it before, and I'll share it again. Line us all up on the edge of the Grand Canyon. How many of you can jump really far? I think we have an Olympic track and field star in here. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Hey, no pointing. It it was... Are you pointing at Pastor John? (laughs) She can probably jump further than all of us. 
But guess what? When we count to three and we all jump, we all end up in the same place, don't we? Because none of us can scale that gulf. And that's the guilt that stands before us. That's the bucket of judgment. Nobody has anything to offer. So let me close with this, guys. Put Paul in a courtroom right now. He's the attorney. And the arraignment has taken place when the defendant is brought before the judge. And who is the defendant? It's us. We're brought before a perfect judge. And the indictment we saw in chapters one and two, the charges that are being brought before us, no one's righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. We have all turned aside. We have all become unprofitable. We are not good, no, not one of us. That's the indictment. And then Paul goes on, we saw 13 counts alone just in this chapter against mankind. They deal with our character, they deal with our conversations, and they deal with our conduct. And what's our motive? There is no fear of God in our eyes. This is our life to live, you can't have it, God. That's our motive, pride, arrogance. And what's our defense? What did we learn? We have none. Our mouths are stopped. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. There's nothing we can do. So what's the verdict? It's guilty. And guys, if Paul's letter ended here, this would be the worst news that anyone could ever hear. But here's the wonderful news. Paul's not finished. Chapters one through three, it's a cycle of death. But here in verse 21, it's called the hinge verse. Paul now takes a turn. And instead of focusing on the cycle of death, now he begins to explain how mankind can go from death to life, from darkness to light. And I'll just read this, and then Paul will begin to explain this as we continue our study next week. But now the righteousness of God, his rightness, his perfection, apart from the law, is revealed. Not just talking about God's righteousness, but how we obtain the righteousness of God. How do we stand in right standing before God, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Again, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance. God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. We are all guilty. And there's nothing in the flesh that we can do to deal with that guilt. God did it all through the person of Jesus Christ. And if we will place our faith in him, we will be forgiven of all of our sins. 
and we will be adopted into his family. And that picture that we have in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with their creator, one day we will be returned to that paradise where we get to enjoy his presence. And I want that for you. And if you're here this morning and you've heard, oh man, what's the difference between Christianity and all other religions? Guys, whether it's Mormonism or Muslims or Buddhists, they all attempt to become right with God through good works. And that is damnation. Because there's nothing we can do apart from believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I have to ask, I know this becomes routine for, for some of us, but guys, that, this is why we're here. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. We want to see their lives transformed. We want people to find the same hope that we have found. So if you're here this morning and you have seen the truth of what Paul has taught, that you know you're guilty, but you want to be forgiven. And today... You see now through Paul's letter that forgiveness is available not through you earning your way back into God's favor, but it's available by simply believing on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he came for you. He lived a perfect life for you and he died for you. He rose again, he defeated death for you and now he invites you into a relationship with him. And if you're ready to take that step, I ask you, just raise your hand so we can pray with you. If you're ready to give your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand? And then I just want to close with this. If you've lost sight of your purpose, If you're born again and you know it, but you find yourself just involved in lesser activities day to day, and you just want to get back to a place where you're living out that purpose, where you know that you're hearing from God and and you're spending time with Him, and, and you just don't want to waste another minute, and you just need some prayer in that area to be disciplined in the time that you have left here on earth. You want to live it with meaning, and you want to return to him, the one who gives your life meaning. Would you raise your hand? I'd be honored to pray with you. Praise God. Anybody else say, I just, I just got to find my place back at his feet. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, you are so good. Thank you for preserving your word. We know that you use Paul as an instrument, that your word is trustworthy, without error and without flaw. And it's alive. It's your living, breathing revelation to us. And I pray that we'd find ourselves studying it, not for the sake of memorization only, Lord, so that we can meet with you. And Lord, I pray for those who raise their hand and those of us who know that our time is short. 
Help us not only to be busy about your work, but before we even get busy about your work, help us to find time at your feet and just enjoying what Jesus paid for. And that's a right relationship with you. We want to be with you. We want to become like you. And we want to continue to do what you did. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.